Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, who you, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, before we begin, let's pray. God us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm a little under the weather, so I apologize if I sound a little congested, but I feel like a million bucks. So I'm really excited to go over chapter 32 with you. And as we do, um, I just want to remind us of where we have come from as far as Exodus is concerned. And this is a people that were oppressed, that were subjected to torture, um, almost genocide. God had taken them out of Egypt, up into freedom to himself, to a place uh, where he was residing, the mountain. And so we are in this place, and I remember talking with um, someone here about my desert experience, too, when I was in the Sahara, and how crazy it was. And when it was, when it was daytime, during the day, it would get as hot as like 110-something degrees. It would be so hot that we had to, like people would wear these things on top of their heads, not because it was just fashion, because your, your scalp would burn off. So you need some kind of protection. And then it would go down past their neck so you wouldn't get uh, sunburned on your neck. So that's why they would put this head covering on and we had to do that while we were in the Sahara. And it gets so hot and you'd think, wow, I don't know how anybody could survive. And at night when the sun goes down, um, it would get so cold. So all the sand on the, on the desert floor would be like ice. Even though we pitched tents, 
and they had these little mattresses that we could sleep on. So I, I was with uh, some Bedouins, and they brought some mattresses with them. And so I was sleeping, and um, just like just like now, I was a little sick back then too. That's weird. But uh, I was I was trying to sleep. But these mattresses were just made for I guess smaller Egyptians. I, I don't know, but they were they were for people that are like maybe five five or five six. So my feet would always go over the mattress and it would touch the ground past. So I had, um, I was on top of the mattress. I had this, at the time, there was this North Face uh, sleeping bag which would cover you for up to minus four degrees, whatever that they would advertise. And that part of that, the end of that uh, sleeping bag would touch the sand and I would feel ice cold. That's how cold it was. And I was just thinking about it. And there was someone here who said, you know, isn't that crazy that after all the things that God did for the people of Israel, he carried them up out of Egypt and through the desert journey, they said he led them by a pillar of cloud by day. And if you think about it, it was 110 plus degrees, the pillar of cloud would have given them shade. And that's amazing, that's amazing. And a pillar of fire by night. So it would keep them warm as long as you stay close to God. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And I was thinking about how good God was to his people and reflecting on that. And then you come to Exodus chapter 32, and it almost doesn't make sense. God is so good. He's the one that's bringing his people up out of Egypt, giving them cover by day, shade by day, fire and warmth by night, leading them. So they don't have to worry about anything, not even food to eat. We heard about manna from the sky that they, they didn't know what to call it, so they, they just called it manna, which meant, what is this? And they would give, he would give them food, he would give them water to drink, of all places, out of a rock sometimes. And here we are in Exodus 30, 32, and what are we to do to make sense of this? How does this make any sense, or it doesn't make no sense at all, and when you're in small groups, maybe when you're going through this, like this doesn't make any sense. How can they be so stubborn? And so just, it, I, don't, I don't get it. They frustrate me to no end. And then you might just pass this passage thinking that. And so the question we should ask before as we go into this passage today or this chapter is do you really believe what you say you believe? And I don't want you to just skip through that question. I want you to really think about it. Do you really believe what you say you believe? You know, the most recent Pew Research Center has, has it that the U.S., the United States of America, 70.6% 70, 70 say they are Christian. 70.6% of the people residing in the United States, States of America say they are Christian. And among them, about 25.4% say they are evangelical Christians. So that, that's around where we are. We're most similar to the evangelical Christian camp. And among, so think about it, out of the 70%, about a quarter are evangelical Christians. And among the evangelical Christians, 83% believe in God, or they have absolute certainty that God exists. Now you might think, wow, that's, that's a good percentage. But no, that, that, that's crazy. So 70%, are Christians, 25% and among this 25% of evangelical Christians, 
83, so one around four in five say God, they believe in God, and they're absolutely certain. That means one in five don't. They don't know if God is really real. And even among that number of evangelical Christians, 49% of evangelical Christians attend service at least once a week. Half attend service once a week. Now, those, these are astounding numbers because we can think we are Christians. Oh, this is 70.6%. This is 70. That's a lot of Christians here in the United States. And it's been kind of hovering around that number for a few uh, decades, uh, maybe up to 75 at one point. But 49% of evangelical Christians attend service at least once a week. These are astounding numbers. And the question isn't just for us personally, but maybe as a group. Do we really believe what we say we believe? And so as we explore, we go to verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, or the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. There's a lot here just in this verse. When the people saw that Moses was delayed, so when was this around? So do you remember when we were around chapter 24 of Exodus, Moses came down, he brought down the Ten Commandments, they had a feast together, and there was a celebration, sprinkles blood, say this is the covenant, and the people were like, yes, we will obey the covenant. That was the last time. And then Moses goes back up into the mountain. Delayed means he was up back up after that incident for about 40 days. For 40 days, he didn't show up. And so that's when the people got themselves together and said, up to Aaron. So there is this word play here. Moses is not coming down, then I'm going to make someone else come up. So they go to Aaron, and they go to Aaron and say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And they go ask for this Moses, which is just a put-down term. As for this guy, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Moses would fail to come down in their eyes, so they would bring someone else up. This isn't just something that happened back in the Exodus days. This is humanity. When you don't fulfill my needs then I will find someone else. This is the world that we live in. Just a few chapters ago, we learned about covenant and what it means to covenant. But that's not what people want. They call Moses this Moses, which is a sign of disrespect. And this is the kind of humanity and culture that we've always lived in. Talking about marriage. Now marriage continues to portray and give out this, this understanding that it's about you fulfilling my need. And if you don't fulfill my need, if you don't fill me to what I want to be, then I don't think this covenant is working out. But that's not what biblical covenant means. This is what Tim Keller writes about biblical love. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. So the real question is, how much time, money, freedoms will you sacrifice or give up to the other person? That's a real covenant. But our understanding of covenant now 
is I want you to fill my needs. Don't you understand what my needs are? When we, even when we talk about love languages and things of that nature, immediately people just start to register this as I have this love language. I need you to understand it so you fill my tank. And that is not the idea of biblical covenant or biblical love. And so when they do this, they continue to pour, they continue to portray the evil of humanity. We think that we've become this amazing kind of new people. We've seen God in this fire, in this cloud. His man has come down from the mountain, given us his law. This is amazing. And why did Moses go back up in the, in the first place? Didn't he go back up because he was now receiving instructions for the tabernacle? What is that? Once, once God's people said, yes, let us covenant, didn't God bring Moses up and now he's instructing Moses on the tabernacle, which meant that he will reside with the people forever? This is how I'm going to stay with you forever. So I'm going to give you instructions how that's going to be possible. And as he's just receiving it, then this is what's happening in the midst of it. In verse 2, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So apparently, even the sons wore earrings back then. So this is what I would say to my mom when I was younger. Mom, see, I want an earring. And then she said, don't come back home. So I didn't get an earring back then. But even back then, they, they would take off all their earrings. And we don't know exactly how much gold was used. But if, it, if all the people took it off, then you're thinking of one million plus people, perhaps, taking off their earrings. And so that could be a, a big kind of gathering of gold. So they all took off the rings of gold, and they brought them to Aaron. And in verse 4, it says, He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you might think this is insane. But if you continue to think about it, when I got sick, the past few days ago, I immediately go back to default. What does that mean? That means I, go, I went back to what I knew to make myself better. So I felt, I felt like this cold was coming on. I got up, and I took about seven or eight teaspoons of lemon juice. And I put a tablespoon of honey, put in hot water, and I drank it. Because that's what I know. That's how I grew up. Um, some of you might be thinking, that's weird, because if I'm sick, I go to the doctor. I think that's a better default. I'm just, I'm just letting you know that's a better, if that's your default, then keep that one. That's better. But that's not immediately what I think of. I, I didn't grow up like, let's go to the doctor. I just, you know, my mom will make that, and then I would drink it, and then I'd go to bed. Uh, but that's immediately what I did. And so when trouble happens, when there's some kind of empty space, when there's some kind of just, you know, lull, we're the kind of people that immediately go back to default. What is your default? Is it lemon juice, vitamin C, tablets, honey, etc.? Well, the default for these people is what do we know? And when we studied the book of Exodus, we saw that there was a God that they worshipped, and that God was a bull. And here it says golden calf, but the understanding of the word of calf just meant a young bull. So it's not like when we say calf, it's like just a, a you know, cattle that was just born. That's not what it meant. 
It meant uh, a very strong, um, young, but also, you know, it meant a bull. <laughs> I was thinking, if you want to think of something, then think of the bull and uh, Wall Street. Because that bull, it would signify power, it would signify strength, it would signify virility, and that was what they made. And then after they made that, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Out of sight, out of mind. So I'm just going to make my own thing. And that's what they did. And when Aaron saw this, it says in verse 5, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's a lot of uh, wordplay here, but the meaning and the intention of these word plays are they did what they, they, they knew, what they went back to the default. So a lot of commentators are thinking, yeah, even it, it meant orgies, it meant you know, sexual promiscuity, it meant just eating whatever you want, it just meant doing whatever you want. And that's when, in verse seven, the Lord says to Moses, go down. For you people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And so after God sees it, he says to them, he says to Moses, these people are stiff-necked people. What does that mean? It's like uh, when you are stubborn and immediately you would get stiff-necked, is like you would kind of get your neck straight up. It meant like even if you were to move a donkey, that people would think, people would have this picture in their head, and you know, you try to bring the donkey close and it would just resist. And that's, that's the picture that we see. We see a people stubborn and resilient, uh, resistant, sorry, resistant to God's leading and his teaching. And then he goes, Now therefore leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now does God have any right to do this? And if we remember, I just mentioned chapter 24, he has every right to do this because they are the ones that made the covenant. So he has every right, right to kill and destroy this, these people who are stiff-necked, who are not obedient, who broke the covenant. But then here, there's something really, really interesting that happens. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And in verse 14 it says, And the Lord relented. 
another word that you could use is repented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's, that's really interesting, isn't it? The Lord changed his mind because of Moses' prayer. Um, this is what we understand to be an anthropomorphism. Uh, more properly in this case is anthropopathism, which is where we try to explain what God is using human terms. So we do that for anything that's not human. We could, we could do it for like a monkey or a pet or something like that. We could put something uh, or an analogy where a human, in human terms to try to understand. So God, God changing his mind is a way that we can try to understand this passage, but we all understand, I hope that we know, God is unchanging. He is immovable. But one thing that we learn from here, and that's very clear, is because God is unchanging and immovable, what is all this? And we are not to think of Moses altering God's purpose towards Israel by prayer, but Moses is actually carrying out God's prayer or his purposes. This is really important that we get this because this, will con- this theme continues throughout this chapter and the chapters going forward. Moses was, wasn't like God changing God's mind in these moments. Moses was part of God's mind and loving purpose. So this is what uh, R.C. Sproul says about this. In what in What in Moses' words and actions would possibly have provoked God to change his mind? I think that what we have here is the mystery of providence, whereby God ordains not only the end of things that come to pass, but also the means. God sets forth principles in the Bible where he gives threats of judgment to motivate his people to repentance. Sometimes he spells out specifically, but if you repent, I will not carry out the threat. He doesn't always add that qualifier, but, but it's there. I think this is one of those instances. It was tacitly understood that God threatens judgment on his people, but if someone pleads for them in a priestly way, he will, ra- he will give grace rather than justice. I think that's at the heart of that mystery. So rather than trying to understand if we are the ones changing God's immovable heart, which is just really beyond our scope of understanding, What we are definitely to understand is that when people or a person pleads for someone in a priestly way, God is the one that would relent or God is the one who would prefer grace or mercy rather than justice. And that really is the heart of the mystery that we are to understand here. And so God relents. God rather gives mercy. And then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. This is also interesting that they would write this little detail down. And these are for the Bible nerds that are out here. Uh, usually when, when any kind of uh, script or something was written on tablets of stone, it would always be one side. But here it's two sides. So you know it's true because normally this wouldn't happen but they were true, and then it goes, the tablets were the work of God. So what God does isn't what normal people have done or what people have historically done. And even writing the tablets, this is something that God says, this is me, this is different. I'm going to write on both sides. I'm going to save paper, that kind of thing. Tablets were the work of God and the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And so when 
he brings down these tablets. Joshua hears the noise of the people. So apparently Joshua is outside the camp waiting for Moses to come down. And he sees, and he sees Moses and he goes, there is a noise of war in the camp. And then Moses responds, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And when he came near to the camp in verse 19, he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned hot. And he took these two tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And so now Moses comes down. He sees what's happening and he gets so upset, so angry that he breaks these tablets, grinds up the calf and everything in it, puts it to a fine powder, makes everyone drink it, saying, this is, what you, this is your own medicine. You better drink this. And... Moses goes to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? So who does Moses go to first for an answer? The one that was responsible, the one that was supposed to lead them, and that person was Aaron. If you look at numbers and other books of the Pentateuch, we see that sometimes there is a little bit of envy and jealousy among Aaron and Moses and Miriam and Moses and that kind of thing. And Numbers 12 and 14, things like that. But um, here, it doesn't specifically say that. We only see it from the other books that come out. And this is what Aaron says. Let not the anger of my Lord, so he lifts up Moses, burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. So, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have, who have gold, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. So this is kind of uh, almost comedic relief here. He goes, what did you do to Aaron? And Aaron, it's very reminiscent of the third chapter or the third page in the first book. When God goes to someone, what did you do? And he immediately blames this person that he was supposed to take care of. And he goes, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was, it was this woman that you made me. And Aaron goes, no, 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 no. These people, they're evil. They gave me all their gold. I just threw it in the fire and boom, out came this calf. And uh, Moses actually doesn't even qualify his statement, doesn't even respond to that. And he goes to the people and he goes, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. This is actually just three words in the Hebrew Bible. The Lord sighed to me, right? And so all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And this is what in verse 27 he says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is very intriguing, because this ordination took blood, right? And there were 3,000 people killed. And we gotta think of it in context. 
in context, we saw how many people came up out of Egypt. Over a million that we saw. 600,000 able men came out. And so the people that were killed, about 3,000 men, may seem like a really small number. So we are to infer from this passage probably the ones that were the most rabble-rousing or the problem-causing or the ones that led the charge to make this golden calf, those are the ones that were the most stiff-necked that got killed. And that was what possibly and probably, in my opinion, happened. Um, why, does, why does God let Moses do this, you might think? I thought he relented. I thought there was mercy. What's going on? Um, to, to try to make sense, uh, I thought of uh, this, this example. Um, there were massive people around the world dying uh, of a disease called smallpox. Smallpox, there were massive people dying. In 1796, there was a guy named Edward Jenner who would try to figure this out, and he had just a hunch and uh, he saw hundreds of thousands of people succumbing to this disease, dying of smallpox, and then he, he just saw a group of people that wouldn't die, that were just healthy, and these were milkmaids. Milkmaids, he, they, were, they were fine, except for some lesions and welts in their hands, which would kind of resemble the smallpox lesions that you would get. So he's like, that's really interesting. Uh, the locals of this, uh, this region who had these milk, milkmaids and had the lesion, they would call it cowpox. And so what he did was, and this is, today it would be highly unethical, like no one would do this, but this is 1796, people were dying, Something, somebody needed to take a chance, and this guy did. He would take um, some of that, the lesions, the, the, the cowpox from the milkmaid's hands that was like the ooze that was coming out, it's kind of gross. He would take it and then he found a boy to inject it in. I kid you not, this is real. And this is history. His name was James Phipps. He's famous throughout history because he's the boy. He's like, okay, put some cowpox in me. And he did. He would take this needle and he put cowpox in him. And he didn't get smallpox. So people were like, this is interesting. But he went, uh, uh, Jenner went a little bit further. He took a second needle, and this time he put smallpox on the things that actual people are dying with. And he goes, I'm going to inject it into Phipps now. And I guess the kid said, okay, because that's our history, right? And so he put the second needle in uh, little boy James Phipps, and guess what happened to James Phipps? He didn't get smallpox. That's how it started. So what people would call really unethical now uh, it, it catapulted into this world. Now this is what we understand as vaccinations. Vaccinations came from the word vaca, which meant Latin word vaca, which means cow. And so if you didn't want to die from smallpox, you would have to put cowpox in you, which people thought was crazy. This is crazy. Why do I need to inject myself with cowpox? Because I, I might get lesions on my hand. I might, not, I might get a little uncomfortable. But if you didn't put that in, you might die, for real. In fact, because this was such an epidemic, most likely you will die of smallpox. It was spreading throughout the world. What we think is, man, this is, why do we even need to do this? And this is what God is teaching us. God is teaching us, you might need a vaccination. It might hurt a little bit. And the needle was two-pronged needle. It was pretty big. 
It wasn't like the little needles we have now. It was like a two-prong. It looked like a fork when I saw it. And you're just pretty much injecting a fork infected with disease. And like, sure, like James Phipps, you're the man. But um, when you think about it, that's what sometimes we need. We need a vaccination, and it might hurt a little. You might get a little prick. You might feel uncomfortable for a day. But these things are to get rid or for you to build up antibodies or whatever it is so you don't get a worse disease. Getting sick a little is better than actually outright dying, isn't it? And so you see this kind of happening. And God is teaching his people. And then in the end, we see, in the end of this chapter, we see a plague happen, which is literally what we're talking about. And a plague, God is teaching his people, when you go back, I don't, want you go, I don't want you to go back to default. This is for your own sake because if you go back to default, you're going to die. You're not going to make it. I'm going to teach you something that's better, a better way to follow me, a better way to worship me, a healthier way to live, in fact, a way to life. And I want you to follow what I have to say. When the people won't get it, it says, you know what, you have sinned such a great sin Moses goes, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes back to the Lord. And remember, this is his priestly heart. This is why Moses, still in the Jewish religion, he's the man. But this is what he says to the Lord. Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He's saying, if you don't save your people, I don't even want to be there too. Just blot me out of your book. And this is a priestly heart. This is what also Paul says about the Jewish people too. But this is how God responds to Moses. But the Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What's the answer then? Yes or no? God says no. No, his priestly prayer, as good as it was, God says no. But now, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord set a plague on the people because the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. I love how the narrator just makes sure that we get it. Aaron made it. It didn't just, you know, when he goes, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. That's just ridiculous. Just in case you didn't get that was a joke, here it is. Aaron made that calf. But that's how the chapter ends. You know, we, in today's life, we live at a time when the church is full of compromises. We live at a time when we, when we think we're God's people, we live in a time full of of compromises. You know, godly religion is being polluted by the values of culture. Where do you think they got the calf from? It was what they knew. It was their default. Is what they saw. So that's what they went back to. That's when they infused culture with their worship. They called this Yahweh. When they say Lord, that means Yahweh. This, this calf is now Yahweh, which, which is crazy, but this is what they said. Now, instead of the Lord or the Bible, the Word of God setting the agenda for the church, it's the world setting the agenda for the church. Why do we believe this is right? Why do we believe this is wrong? Is it because the world or the culture tells us, or is it because the Word of God tells us? 
We try to settle down in today's world somewhere in the gap, right? Let's compromise. Let's be, let's be generous people. So these are the standards of the gospel, standards of the world. We try to settle somewhere in between. Exodus 32 is a warning to those who try to settle in between. You can't make a calf and call it Yahweh because that's not Yahweh. It's not. God dictates how he will be worshipped, what we are to obey, what the commands are. It's the Lord that dictates it. We don't dictate it. So we are given this warning in Exodus 32. It's a call to get rid of ourselves of this worldly compromise and to be holy like God is holy. We have compromised far too much in our worship. We have compromised far too much in our understanding of who God is. The standard of worship is what God teaches us in his word. This is the standard in the word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. This is the standard. And this is what God is teaching his people because this is the only way to life. We said Moses before couldn't fully intervene for his people. He couldn't go to God and atone for their sins. Even if he said, take my life, take my life and throw me aside so that your people can be saved. God says, no, why is that? Because God loved Moses so much? It's because Moses' life, as good as it was, it wasn't good enough. As priestly as it was, he wasn't holy enough. A few thousand years later comes another man. And when he gets crucified on the cross, literally the sky is blotted and darkened out. And his name was stricken. And he died. The death We should have died. His name is Jesus. And he was blotted out for our sake. He was crucified so that we don't get the ultimate punishment of death, that we could have life. And this is the high priest, the ultimate high priest, who we now worship and who we now follow with all that we have. Who are we? We are Jesus' followers. We are Jesus' followers. We worship Jesus, and there is no other name that we worship. So this, my friends, is the standard that we are to follow. This is the worship that we are to give him, the worship in which he calls to worship. Who is the name that we are to lift up? We are to lift up the name of Jesus, not just in song, yes, in song, And not just in word, yes, in word. And not just in word, deed, yes, indeed, in the things that we do. But with every single fiber of our being, all that we are. And this is why we do the things that we do in worship. That's why we have confession. Because we recognize, you know what? We're not doing that right now, even though we're supposed to. We say we believe these certain things, but we're not following them. So I need to confess. I need to repent. I need to come back. 
That's why we have confession of sin. Because we're saying we're not weak. We need to continually come back. And then we have assurance of salvation. See, all these things in our worship is showing us that, yes, the gospel is true, and we show and we live it out, even in the corporate worship that we do. But that is supposed to extend to every part of our lives. On Monday, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every single day you're supposed to have this gospel life magnified, exemplified, spread out for the people around you to see because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is going to give us eternal life. This is why we say we wait for the resurrection of the dead. This is what we long for when we said in the Nicene Creed, right? This is what we really want. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we're hoping for. Not like I hope, but this is what we hope for, meaning this is true and we wait for this promise to come. And this is why we are gathered together today as believers in Christ, knowing that he is the true life. This vaccination is not just something that heals us from one temporary disease only to give us death the next day, but this vaccination is life-giving meaning for eternity. This is what Jesus gives us in his blood, and this is what we are to receive in faith. So my friends, if you have not received this yet, I urge you, by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, accept Jesus Christ wholly into your life. No more of this compromises here and there, saying, they're, they're, I'm going to make this calf. I'm gonna, this is not the worship of God that he desires and not a worship that he will receive. The worship that he will receive is in his word and it is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So by the power and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, accept him wholly into your heart and turn from your sinful ways and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And he is the one that will guide you to truth in the way and life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the warning that is in Exodus chapter 32, but also the encouragement that is in Exodus chapter 32, both the wrath and the mercy that we need to hear because, Lord, you are good and you fulfill your covenant and your promise to your people. So we ask, Lord, that you would be with your church now. In a time when the church is full of compromises, we pray that we would stay holy, that we would be unified, and that we would continue to mature and salvation that you've given us in Christ. Let's pray now. And in your life, you may also be guilty of compromising, of not making Yahweh your number one, or even saying this is Yahweh when it wasn't in the Bible, when that isn't Him. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to come and pour out your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, repent. I give my life wholly to you. I know that you are the only way, the truth and life. So lead me as you lead your people. Pray that in your heart. And our God is good. And he gives grace over wrath. Let's pray.